Hello and welcome to Your Best Self, a podcast about careers. I'm your host, Faye Rowlands, lawyer and journalist, and together in this podcast, we'll hear from inspirational people spanning the worlds of business, politics, law, media, science, art, and more, sharing what they love most about their jobs, how they handle setbacks, and offer listeners their tips to career success. I hope this podcast informs and inspires you to think big and encourages you to go after the dream job you want. Earlier this year, Twitter announced it was permanently suspending the account of then-President Donald Trump due to repeated breaches of the platform's rules. A similar ban imposed by Facebook was extended this week by the company's oversight board. Well, my guest on the podcast this week is well-placed to speak on these issues and more. Many of you will know Mark Little as a journalist and an entrepreneur. His career has taken him everywhere from Washington, D.C. as RTE's U.S. correspondent to the helm of one of Ireland's biggest current affairs shows, Primetime. In 2010, he founded Storyful, a social media intelligence agency, which was acquired by News Corp in 2013 under a multi-million euro deal. Since then, he's held the positions of head of media partnerships and managing director at Twitter. And more recently, he's returned to his entrepreneurial roots by co-founding Kinzen, a social intelligence agency to combat disinformation. Mark, welcome to the podcast and thanks for speaking with me today. Pleasure, Faye. I'm actually exhausted listening to that <laughs> that resume, but great to be here. It's a long list. There's a lot to talk about. You've achieved a lot in a short space of time. Um, and I suppose maybe we could start, Mark, at the beginning of your career and take you back to the very beginning. I understand that you were the first in your family to go to university, that you'd done economics at Trinity. You've been involved in the student paper there, students union there. What was the moment for you that you decided you wanted to become a journalist? I was way before that. I think I may have been five or six years old sitting watching television with my father and I was obsessed with sports, so football. And I was also obsessed by news. And and so, you know, back in 1974, I would have been watching the World Cup finals and at the same time watching whatever foreign correspondent was in the, the middle of the war zone. And I think by the age of sort of early teen years, I realized I was never going to be center forward for Liverpool. I didn't have any natural talent. And so in the absence of natural talent and a you know, surplus of skepticism and cynicism, I realized I was going to be a journalist. Um, so that's kind of where it all came from. I realized very early on that I just loved the idea of being at the, the front line of change. You know, I was obsessed with politics. Um, I was very radical when I was young. So in student union days, I was president of the union at Trinity. I was member of Labour Youth. Um, my very first job in journalism, believe it or not, was selling advertising for Marxism Today, which was the sort of thought leadership magazine of the British Communist Party. This was back in 87 during the Thatcher years. Um, and it was, it doesn't sound as extreme as it was, but it was basically one of those places where there was just this moment in the late 80s where everything was changing. There was this, this uprising against conventional wisdom, particularly in Britain. So yeah, I just was obsessed with that whole concept of how do I, if I'm not gonna be part of this change, how do I be an observer? How do we be part of describing history to people as it unfolds? So in everything I've ever done, that has been the common theme. Like what's gonna happen when we turn around the corner? 
what's next what's the future and who are the people that are shaping the future and that's what drew me to journalism and eventually to entrepreneurship and i understand then you began your career in ireland with the sunday business post can you describe for us what your first day in the newsroom was like <laughs> it was funny because there was a great bunch of journalists there at the time and irish media observers will know mac cooper and people like that and you know very inspirational set of editors like Aileen o'toole uh, and damien kybert and you know i remember one day frank fitzgibbon one day I was writing my first front page story for the Sunday Business Post and um, James Morrissey, who went on to become, uh, you know, who was a very famous media character, you know, tapped me on the shoulder and just said, make it sing. And I've never had as good a piece of advice in journalism as that very first front page story for the Sunday Business Post. What he was saying was, you know, elevate whatever facts you have in this piece. It's going to be on the Sunday paper, on somebody's breakfast table on Sunday morning make it sing and so that sense of storytelling being about passion and being from the perspective of the reader the user of the information you know that's never left me now i might look back in retrospect and invest an awful lot more uh being into what he said he may have just been saying something nice to me on the way to the toilet i don't mind because that for me was uh, such a lesson um and yeah i was a grafter a bit of a grifter so i love getting into places i shouldn't have been and yeah, I got that very early on from the Irish media landscape in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And can you remember what that first front page story was about, Mark? Yeah, it was actually about a, a, a guy who ran a betting shop empire in Ireland that he went bankrupt. Uh, and there were all kinds of, you know, potential <laughs> issues behind that I won't even go into. I'm even scared with the distance of time <laughs> over libel and defamation. But it was one of those stories that I just got from uh, developing a contact over a period of months and just sitting down for coffee and hearing something the person said on the side and picking it up and making a story out of it. And also remember the time, this was, you know, when before all the big tribunals, when we were still in a, a place where political corruption was rife. Um, it was still a time of very cons it was conservative. It was before the Celtic Tiger. The best thing you could do in Ireland as a graduate was leave. So, you know, it was just before the country had its inflection point that became the very cosmopolitan extrovert place it is today so there was an awful lot to to be rebelling against i'm sort of minded of marlon brando you know who said uh, what are you rebelling against what do you got uh, and there was a sense of uh, being a journalist was by definition being a campaigner a digger uh, and that's the kind of journalism that i joined back in that day so a few years later then you find yourself at the national broadcaster in rte and i wonder what was the transition from print over to broadcast like for you terrible uh, i was so bad i actually sent an interview tape i think to one of the radio stations in dublin 98 fm and years later i, I met the head of news who said your tape was so bad that i used to i used to actually let people listen to it to to see how not to do it my very first report on RTE News was a prison riot at Mountjoy, and I was sent out with a mobile phone the size of a suitcase, quite literally. And I didn't expect to get called on, but of course, in the middle of the six o'clock news, the thing rings. I don't even have to answer the thing. I pick it up. It's Anne Doyle uh, of RTE News fame. And I just kept saying the same thing again and again, which was like, they are slowly but surely moving across the roof. And that's all I had to say. And I came back and the head of news at the time said to me, don't watch that report. <laughs> it won't give you a great degree of confidence. So yeah, I was um, going into an arena that I was completely unprepared for, but thank God for RTE. It just throws you in the deep end and you either sink or you swim. 
but there's a great uh, esprit de corps where people are around you and you, you learn very quickly. It's almost like osmosis. So that's why I, I don't take great store in people trying to perfect the right voice or trying to learn from other people. Just do it. Get in there. M embarrass yourself to begin with and then don't look back and don't listen to the first tape. And on this point, Mark, what was the biggest lesson that you learned early on in your journalistic career? Be curious listen more than you talk. I was being trained from my primetime job. And one of the things about journalism is that you're taught to just fill the air, right? There's nothing worse in broadcasting than dead air. So as a broadcast journalist, you're always taught that no matter what, just keep talking. You know, I would sometimes in primetime get a, a little word in my earpiece to say, listen, the report hasn't arrived yet. Just keep talking. And that's what you're trained to do. The problem is when you become an interviewer, and I, I would argue as for any journalist, you're not told to listen. And so a great broadcaster called Michael Heaney was doing some off-air training for me and he said, have the courage to listen. Uh, and that's a really interesting piece of advice because when you're in a, a TV interview studio, you're always thinking about your next question. And as a consequence, you can sometimes miss that one word, that piece of gold. I remember one night that Michael McDowell, who was Minister for Justice, called Bertie Ahern a socialist. And I was thinking of the next question. I didn't pick it up. And it's only afterwards I'm like, that was a game changer. So that's what I learned from particularly broadcast journalism. But I would argue that way too many times we go into journalism thinking that we're there to fill up the, the silence, when in fact, sometimes the silence is the thing. And that's what I've learned over the years. And would there have been anyone in those years who you would have turned to in particular for advice uh, in matters relating to your career? Just my peers. Um, you know, I didn't really, I mean, I had people I respected greatly, but in all honesty, it was it was really very much a, a bunch of people at the time who were young. We were all, you know, ambitious, but we were all, it was fairly fraternal. And, and the press corps in Dublin, you know, I, I really had a bunch of people around me who I could learn from. Um, and it's literally by by being in a room with people and watching and having emotional intelligence. And then obviously in Dublin, in media circles, you're going to get taken down. You will do a great interview and you'll walk in the pub afterwards and suddenly you're like, everyone's slagging you off. So you never really get, you know, <laughs> above your station when you're in Irish journalism. And I think that's one of the good things. It, it means that you never let your own PR go to your head. Um, and as a consequence, it's not that you're, you know, humble, but it's just that you're grounded and you never forget that your ultimate boss is the Irish people. And I, and I have to say, with a lot of people will slag off RTE, but like in, our, in the early days, we knew that we were public servants. We were there and representing Irish people and looking through their eyes of the stories that we were reporting. So yeah, I think that sort of sense of flatness of hierarchy, um, of people competing constantly and constantly slagging each other off and getting better and doing and just being thrown into situations that in retrospect look just totally crazy, like getting on planes, getting off planes and going to a war zone and being shot at and, and working out how you just don't get killed. Um, there's nothing so clarifying as a learning experience than, you know, getting into a car and knowing if you pick the wrong route to take, you might be dead by the end of the day. And that, that's suddenly when I got into foreign correspondency, the stakes are so high that nothing else really ever is that intimidating after you've been shot at for the first time. 
So fast forward then to 1995, you find yourself in the US appointed RTE's first Washington correspondent and you were there during the Clinton years. I'd love to hear a story, Mark, that, you know, perhaps is not your favorite story, but a story that was really significant for you to cover over there at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite easy because um, I interviewed a guy on death row called Michael Lockhart, who had committed an outrageous series of murders. And he was in death row and he was being executed on the Tuesday following. And so I went down to a place called Huntsville, Texas, uh, which is where the death chamber is. And I went in and I talked to him. Now he had a had a conversion to religion and uh, I met him and he would, you know, I, I never forget that. I'd done walk this last walk a million times, he said to me. And we walked the walk then with the camera people into the death chamber to this kind of cross shaped bench that he was going to lay down on and have an intravenous drug in his, in his, uh, in his arm and he'd, de- he'd die. And I interviewed him, went home to Washington and I went out uh, at my office at five o'clock the moment that he was put to death. And I knew the time he would die. And I remember thinking to myself, there is no way humanity should ever be like this. I should not know the moment that man will die. And yeah, he was put to death. And he, I think he rated like three paragraphs in the local newspaper his death. So that for me was, yeah, it was moments like that when you get access to something so barbaric and almost like machine-like that, you know, it just wakes you up and you're like, okay, well, I could get too comfortable sitting here in my nice office in my apartment in Washington. But when you see that kind of thing, you, you really can realize just how dark humanity can get. And also what a responsibility you have to just show that to people. So that was one, that was probably the story I think that stays with me. And in fact, when you asked the question, it it just came unbidden to me. I mean, there were thousands of stories that I did and places I went to, but um, yeah, that's one that stuck with me, that shook me, I think, out of my sense of complacency. Like I was a political correspondent walking down to the White House. Um, I would walk in there on my hard pass and I'd be inside like the Oval Office occasionally and I was on Air Force One. And then I saw this. And I was just, okay, there's something about the United States that you can get too complacent about. And do you think maybe it was just a story that you just weren't expecting to have to cover? Yeah, the fact that I can actually remember the thing he said to me, um, you know, it's funny, I haven't thought about it in quite a while. But I think that's when those things get inside you. As a reporter, you're always looking out for those kinds of stories that actually get under your skin. Um, So when I was a foreign correspondent, a story like that for me was Iran. In the United States, what I was always trying to do was balance out being in Washington, standing there. This is Mark Little, RT News Washington correspondent. And then being in a place like Idaho, interviewing neo-Nazis or, or going to the death chamber in Texas or getting on a plane and going down to understand why people were so resistant to immigration, you know, being on that wall. So, yeah, I, I think looking back in the time in Washington, it was this weird balance between the gilded cage of the Washington press corps and the reality of the United States uh, as it would become later with Trump. The early seeds of Trump were in American society in the very fabric. And that's what I discovered when I was there. It's the darkness and the light that makes it a very special but also quite dangerous place. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about Donald Trump again in a little bit. So hold that thought. But I'd like to take you next to 2002. You take the helm at uh, RTE's current affairs show, Primetime. And you were there during the years of the financial crisis. And I'd love to know what it was like being in the center of Irish political life and, and Irish power 
at that time, a time of such change in Ireland? It's always a danger, I think, looking back in retrospect, that it looks so self-evident that we would all just call it out, you know, and say this this economy is now in free fall. But I remember at the time there was a lot of political heat for any journalist that would step up and say, you know, before the financial crash, this is unsustainable. And there were very brave people like Morgan Kelly at UCD. There were some journalists who were warning it. And in prime time, we had reporters that were constantly chasing the story, were constantly warning the, the economy was overheated. And, you know, we were having people like Bertie O'Hearn get up and say, like, you're just talking down the economy. And, you know, why don't you go off and kill yourself if you're so depressed? And so it was a very tough time um, to tell people. And it's not just the politicians, but everybody was invested so heavily in property, invested so heavily in this roller coaster ride just continuing upwards forever that nobody wanted to hear that it was a pack of cards. So when it started to fall apart, there was almost that moment when, you know, it's like a, a, the roadrunner moment when the roadrunner just runs off the edge of the cliff. And there's this moment of disbelief when they just can't imagine falling and they're stuck and then they fell. And I think the one night that is for me, I suppose, the that looking back, the most important night was interviewing the financial regulator when they were you know, absolutely telling us that the banking system was safe. And we had this financial regulator in the studio and his answers were just so blatantly naive or, you know, untrue that it was like that moment. And I think the, the US writer, Michael Lewis, who's, uh, you know, whose book about the financial crisis across the world, watched that interview later and said, quoted someone as saying that was the moment you realized that the person in charge of the money for the country didn't know what was going on. And, and I think that was the breath when everyone was like, oh, no, they don't know what's going on here. And, and that's kind of like when gravity took over and everybody fell. And then there was a panic. Um, and being in that studio, then after that became a little bit just watching a car crash every night. So it was not as clean cut now as it looks. It was quite a sort of a slow descent into what was kind of madness for a little bit. And then we got back to sort of politics as normal. So then coming towards the end of 2009, you decide to take a step back from prime time. And I wonder, you know, was it a case that you had reached all these key milestones in your journalistic career that you'd wanted to achieve and, and now you wanted to do something different? No, I think there was a sense of, of like when I would go to a place, like I, I was never anything but a foreign correspondent in all honesty. Like I, I enjoyed doing primetime. Um, I enjoyed the challenge every night of going into a studio and working with someone like Miriam McCallaghan. It was great. My real passion was traveling the world. And so I went to Iran uh, quite a bit. As I say, it was a story got under my skin. And I just remember not being able to go to Iran uh, in 2009 for a particularly big story, which was uh, this sort of a, a revolution against the mullahs. And I watched it on Twitter and I was looking at Twitter and I thought, wow, everything's going to change because, you know, now I'm the correspondent. I have the power. The facts are scarce. If you want to, you know, hear the news, you got to tune in. You got to listen to me saying, it's Mark Little, here's the news. Twitter was suddenly going to turn that on its end. And you were going to be able to, as an ordinary citizen, create, consume uh, news without any filter. And I saw that in Iran about June 2009. And that was that slap upside the head when I'd already been feeling that journalism wasn't really that authentic for me. I was really interested in going and traveling. And I just suddenly realized I'm 39 years old. I can see a revolution coming. I will always kick myself if I don't take the chance to jump now. 
And, you know, there was that sense of like thinking about my kids in years to come going, why didn't you take the chance then, dad? So it was a combination of factors, maybe a midlife crisis combined with an awareness of the, ch the revolutionary change in journalism that was about to happen. And I could see a solution. I could see a way of applying traditional journalism to this revolutionary new democratic force that was social media. And I could also work out a way to make money. Now that came later, but <laughs> the first couple of things were all together. So, I mean, I was doing that. It was people coming to me asking me, was I going insane? I had a, a friend who told me in retrospect, they were almost going to have an intervention because they thought I was having a nervous breakdown. Um, I like to think that it was just a very successful midlife crisis, uh, but also an awareness that uh, business as usual for journalism wasn't an option. And I did not want to be run down by the train. I wanted to be driving the train. And that was part of the reason I did what I did. And I suppose when a lot of people reach those kind of pivotal points in their lives where they have to make a decision, like you were at, you know, were you quite confident in your decision? It sounds just from speaking to you like you you were, you really believed in this idea, even though it hadn't been done before, you obviously believed that there was a real potential and a real marketability to this idea. I'll be honest with you, there were days, many, many days. In fact, I didn't, if I'd known how tough it was going to be, there are days I think I wouldn't have done it, even though it turned out successfully because it was so brutal and humbling and in some cases shaming, you know. Like I had experiences in the four years when Storyful was up and running where I had to fire my friends. You know, I had to look my wife in the eye and say, I think I've lost all our money. I had to look at this great career that I'd had and think it's in it's just shattered. So the days were just so tough to get through to the end point that even when we sold the company and it was a success, in retrospect, it was like, that was very tough. You know, it's like knowing you're gonna be in a car crash. Um, do you want to do it if you know it's going to happen? So, you know, I was so unprepared. Um, and, and what I would say, the reason I say all this is because I would have done things differently now that I've learned what I could have done differently. I'm very passionate about trying to help first-time entrepreneurs, particularly people like me who see a problem they want to solve and feel like, if not me, who? And if not now, when? I want to help them avoid some of the mistakes that made it a very brutalizing experience for me. But one, in the end of the day, that was extremely enriching, um, not financially, but like from a very a sense of my own sense of fulfillment and also hopefully very enriching for the hundreds of people that went through Storyful, who have gone on to win Pulitzer Prizes and work for the CNN and the BBC and New York Times. I think ultimately, in the end of the day, what I would like to go back and talk to my 39-year-old self and said, don't be so lonely, like because that's what I thought. I hope to be an entrepreneur is to be totally alone, soak up the anxiety of everything around you and pretend until you make it, you know, and that that is uh, a terrible burden to take on, uh, particularly when so many people are banking on you. So I know I sound very negative, but I think it is one of the things we do need to be honest about in sort of a, in an enterprise. Everyone looks at the exit, the successes. Nobody ever thinks that the vast majority of startups end in failure. And what we need to do is help people understand that sometimes failure that is going out of business means you've learned something very valuable. And sometimes having an exit and getting a lot of money is not really a success. You just have to do it. So there's ways of looking at this brutal experience that I hope can be way more life affirming than the bullshit that we hear so much about. Somebody just got a $5 million fundraising deal or someone sold for 50 million. You never learn anything from those successes. The only thing you learn from is the failures and uh, sometimes the hard times. And so you did sell the company then in 2013. And a couple of years later, you found yourself at Twitter as their head of media partnerships. How did that come about? 
well, it was like getting keys to the toy shop, you know. <laughs> I had met um, a senior leader, Katie Stanton, from Twitter. She was the head of the international sort of internationalization of the company about, I think, 2012 or 13, and we'd had dinner. And I just told her how much I loved the platform, and I was, I just, I did. I was literally, you know, unnaturally in love with Twitter uh, from the very beginning. So then when, you know, they came looking for me, I was, you know, I was sold. I, I was just working inside Twitter for me was a dream. And so when I went to work for the company, it was just everything I thought it would be. It's, it's a great place to work. I mean, it's like, it is like Disneyland uh, in many ways. You walk into the office and everything you need is there. You know, within weeks, I was over in San Francisco and it's a very democratic organization. So the structure is very flat. So you'll be in a room with, you know, Jack Dorsey, who's the founder and the CEO, and you can contribute advice to him. He's there back at Twitter and you can send him any ideas and you'll get a response. So it was a really uh, incredible environment. Problem was, I was there just as Twitter was going through its first major growing pains. Um, financially, it was doing very badly. And there were big question marks over its future. And this was before, obviously, disinformation, misinformation became an existential threat. So it was a tough time to be a corporate executive. And I wasn't necessarily cut out for that at the time as well. So great learning experience. I look back and I must admit, I have, I have pictures of it here in my office. My time with the people there, just fabulous crew, dream job. But, you know, sometimes uh, you just want to visit Disney World. You don't want to live there. And, uh, you know, going out and starting a new business after Twitter was, I learned an awful lot from it. Still love it. Still love the company and still love the message and the vision. And I learned how to be a leader in Twitter of a, of a bigger team. So I have learned incredible leadership lessons about how to lead through adversity and I learned the difference between a leader and a manager. Like a great manager walks in a room and everyone knows that person's in charge. A great leader walks in a room and makes everybody in that room feel like they're in charge. So it's that devolution of power. And that's what I learned from working with some very smart people and people who are smarter than me and how to lead that kind of team. So that was a huge lesson um, and a great gain for me. So then in more recent times, you have uh, founded Kinzen with your business partner, Onya Care. For those listeners who may not know, can you describe what Kinzen is and what it has been set up to achieve? Yeah, our mission is to hopefully protect online conversations and communities from organized campaigns of deception. So it's not just about people saying the wrong thing in the internet. There is, There are people out there, whether they're anti-vaccination people or they're extreme right-wing movements, who are trying to pollute the conversations we're having online with organized campaigns of deception. And so what we do is we gather data and intelligence that helps build algorithms that can detect this threat at scale. And what we do every day is we work with content moderators and the trust and safety teams that are you know, trying to keep these communities and platforms safe and also work with public health communicators uh, and with people who are trying to basically prevent disinformation from getting into conversations we're having and the problem is now it's not just the big platforms. Uh, any forum you visit, any chat room you're part of, any marketplace you buy T-shirts from or books from, disinformation is finding its way into every aspect of our online lives. It's getting into every language, every country, every topic. So it's getting worse before it gets better. And Kinzen's mission basically is to find a way to scale a human solution to this that doesn't involve restricting freedom of speech, that can be open and transparent so that people can see they have democratic control over the decisions that are taken. 
So we have a lot of work to do. So this sounds like the perfect time then on this topic of misinformation to circle back then and speak about Donald Trump. Obviously hit the headlines earlier this year when Twitter decided to suspend his Twitter account. And I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on this, Mark, because you, you've seen both sides of the coin on this one. You've been the journalist who is there advocating for free speech, but equally you're you know very passionate about this combating disinformation online. And I'd love to get your take. Was this a long overdue measure taken by Twitter or was this a dangerous precedent? Yeah, I mean, I think it was the right thing to do at the right time. It was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient and it wasn't the way we should go forward. It was necessary at that moment in time. And I think... You know, even Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of the company, will say, you know, and he had said to us when when I was there in 2015, you know, we are the free speech wing of the free speech party. Twitter's commitment was to that as a founding principle. So the idea of then going along and taking a politician off the platform was very much against what the original founding vision was, but it was necessary. And I think the very fact that he had to be taken down was an expression of the need for oversight of these big platforms. So think about this, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, whatever you think about them, did not set out to create the greatest news distribution systems the world has ever seen. They did not. And it's happened over the past 10 years. So we are still in the early stages of what is a democratic revolution. And what I fear is that we won't distinguish between the technology we need to regulate and the technology that we need to accelerate. And that's where we are at the moment, a very dangerous position where the wrong type of regulation is going to suppress democracy and freedom of speech. So what I advocate for is, first of all, there should be definitely regulation that allows oversight of the way the algorithms work inside these platforms, the data that's being used to train those algorithms, recommending content or taking down politicians. And then as we go forward, we've got to start decentralizing content moderation more and more to the users of these platforms so they can make decisions about whether they want to see or hear a point of view, whether they want to turn their content moderation up to 10 or they want to hear everything. And so I think that's the future for us is to have a combination of smart regulation that makes AI explainable and transparent and tells us what data is being used to recommend these these pieces of content to us, while at the same time accelerating the kind of innovation that we need to, to really train better systems that are giving what currently people who are using these platforms have no control. We've got to decentralize power to as many people as we possibly can. And I think there's going to be new platforms that arise. And I think as we design, knowing what's gone wrong, we can start making some really smart decisions about the architecture of the next wave of the internet that will balance, you know, transparent moderation with freedom of speech. So, you know, what we're doing at the moment in taking Trump down or having regulation to suppress certain types of information is really about the growing pains. This is an emergency measure we've got to take while we design smart regulation and also accelerate the kind of innovation that we need around AI, around detection of misinformation and around the kind of data we're using as well. And that's what Kinzen is essentially doing is we're trying to make that more transparent and explainable. And it all happens at a moment as well when we realize that AI is not a god it is essentially something that we should have control over. So I think there's a broader societal debate about the role of artificial intelligence and perhaps the feeling that we should stop using that phrase, artificial. It's it's made by people and we need to be way more careful about the way we regulate it, just as we regulate other health dangers. 
So I very much believe that we're not living through some sort of information war, but a public health crisis. And just like, you know, regulation is not a vaccine, it's the same thing in disinformation. It's got to be regulation and innovation. And if you don't have one at the other, you're not going to solve the problem. And on this topic of moderation and news curation, how do we avoid a situation whereby we fall into this confirmation bias or these echo chambers? What can we do to, to combat against that? First thing we do is don't overestimate this, this thing about echo chambers, right? So much research has been done and there is no hard evidence that we do actually get into these echo chambers, the vast majority of us. The danger is always going to be a certain segment of our society, generally small minority people, who have been in some ways alienated or disconnected from society, from their communities, their family. Could be because of a job loss. It could be because they're getting older and lonely. It could be because they're predisposed to some sort of conspiracy thought. They're the people we've got to worry. The vast majority of us tend to seek out diversity and tend to ignore or bypass misinformation altogether. So you have to understand here, we should get our definitions right as well. So first of all, I'm not worried about people saying crazy stuff on the internet, right? I'm worried about people who are using organized campaigns of deception to create real world harm, whether that's a neo-Nazi group trying to promote hate against a minority in Europe, or that is somebody promoting a completely bogus claim of a vaccine that will reduce public health. So that's what we gotta be very, very clear is our definition disinformation, organized campaigns, that's the problem. People saying crazy stuff, that's not the issue. And the second vital distinction we make is between freedom of speech and freedom of reach. You have the right to say what you want. You do not have the right to be listened to by millions of people. You do not have the right to be promoted by algorithms that put you in front of masses amounts of people. And so that's where we should be very careful as well. We should not be restricting speech but we should be making sure that these algorithms, this virality that these platforms are built on is not manipulated and abused by people that are trying to promote craziness and real world harm. So that's where the algorithmic transparency becomes so important. And I think it's a bit like, you know, you wouldn't be able to buy a car that had not been thoroughly checked. You would not be able to buy a piece of food in a supermarket that has not been properly labeled. I think the same thing will happen to both the information we consume and the algorithms that are promoting it to us. And we'll know why, and we'll be able to see that way more. So labeling this kind of information system is way more important than you know stopping people saying things online, which obviously is an infringement of the democratic potential that we want from social media, which still for me is a liberating force in society. It's just, we got lost for the last 10 years, I think. And, you know, if some of these sort of marginalized communities, as you put it, are, are sort of part of, of, of why we have this problem with disinformation at the moment, and, and clearly there is a lot of disillusionment out there. We've seen it, you know, with the storming of Capitol Hill earlier this year in the US. We've seen it closer to home with the anti-lockdown protests here in Ireland. I mean, how do we reach out to these marginalized communities and include them in the conversation around disinformation? Like if we are overly censuring in our approach, do we risk driving these people onto underground platforms? We've got to really be careful about listening just to the loudest voice, right? And we say marginalized communities, like the people who stormed the Capitol are not marginalized and the people who are out in the streets of Dublin were not marginalized. However, they do represent a, a sort of strain in our, in our society. So for example, if you're living in rural Ireland, you know, you're not necessarily going to make it into the national media because you don't live in Dublin 
Um, you, you may be marginalized, for example, because of your race, because of your gender. Um, you know, think about a workplace that's designed to favor men because, you know, men can work the nine to five, but they don't have to necessarily take an equal share of domestic labor. So there are so many systematic ways that our society marginalizes people by gender, by race, by location. That's what I worry about. I don't worry about necessarily crazy people who are going to the United States because they think there's child traffickers in a pizza restaurant in Washington, DC. We shouldn't appeal to their biases. But what we should be aware of is why you know people who are living outside big cities don't get a say in the national media or why new communities in a society like Ireland are not asked about their lives. Or not, they don't see themselves reflected in our media. And I think gender, we've, we've got to work out why systematically in media, you know, women's voices have generally had less value within the system over the years. That's the marginalization that I think is what we need to address. Um, so the root causes of what happened with Donald Trump, yeah, they are partly economic, they are partly about alienation, but there's a large chunk of it that is about this cry of a white majority who just fear losing their dominance. So let's distinguish, I think, between what we should respect in terms of diverse voices and what is essentially just the dying gasp of a system that, you know, many of us won't mourn. And I'd like to talk to you also a little bit about anonymity online, because with the rise of social media, we've also seen, you know, the rise of things like online hate speech, harassment. This has been well documented as well, even close to home in the Irish media. And it's something we're seeing more and more of. And it feels like because social media can facilitate this idea of anonymity, that we're, we're seeing more of this. How do we combat this problem? So I think the next wave of innovation that I'm watching, and it may sound a bit like science fiction to most people, is the radical decentralization of our lives. So at the moment, for example, you've no control over the data um, that you leave littered about the internet when you go off looking and searching for a recipe or looking at the Irish Times in the morning or going to search for a holiday. You have no idea where that data goes is going to be a future where all of us get to control our data the things that these online searches say about us and that in itself is going to become a source of real value so i think we're going to start to see what we call data sovereignty and the sovereignty of identity online where at the moment when you sign on to any service immediately there's an army of cookies that are literally robots tracking your every move you don't know them you don't even know they're there you don't know who they're selling your data to that is going to end. And I think more and more when you come onto a site, you're going to have to do some of the things you do, for example, to get access to your bank account. You're going to have to give quite a lot of data and detail to get access to your own personal vault of information. Now, once you have that, think about the power of that for you to be able to go anywhere, a bit like when you can sign on to a service using Google. You know, can you imagine if you could sign on to any online activity, any service, buy anything with your own sovereign identity, you know, ring fenced and under your control, suddenly people would be paying you for your attention. And I think that's where the blockchain, for example, is such an exciting development. It will allow us all to essentially encrypt their own identities and then be able to let those identities talk to any particular online service without exposing us to invasion of privacy or surveillance. And so in that new sort of scenario in which we all have sovereignty over our own identities, then it becomes much easier to stop bad actors masquerading. It becomes much easier to stop these sort of bot armies pretending 
to be outraged from Illinois when they're actually a Russian internet troll in St. Petersburg. In that new future, that's where we don't have to give up our identities. It's just we're going to have control over them and we're going to be able to talk to whatever internet service we want to use. And I think at the moment, if we went to get to that future where everybody had to tell you who they are, we would see that used, I think, by autocratic people who would like to suppress dissent, as is happening for a moment in India, in places like the Philippines, in Russia, in China. And so there is, I think, a developing divide here between countries that are going to have a more autocratic internet where everybody's going to be surveyed and there will be no privacy and no dissent to a new, more open internet where everybody controls their own identity. And do you think the future conversation around that digital sovereignty that you're speaking of, that that's going to require international cooperation? That's going to be need, need to happen at a sort of a supranational level? That's the beauty of it. No. All it requires is for a decentralized system like blockchain, which is starting to go from being a bit of a butt of everyone's jokes, blockchain will solve it, to actually having real world examples where we can start valuing our creative assets by putting you know, them on the blockchain and having a value attached to them, uh, to having Bitcoin becoming a sort of gold standard of the modern age. The reason why that's so exciting is because that doesn't involve any central authority. The power is decentralized to us, either as individuals or communities. Where there would be a need for a supranational body is a bit like the World Health Organization or the FDA in the United States, you know, the Drug Administration, where there would be groups of experts that would be called upon to adjudicate the safety of certain algorithms or the permissibility of a certain protocol, or maybe someone wants to dispute the fact that they were taken off a platform, they should be able to go and report to some sort of structure that would mimic, I think, the World Health Organization or a patent office. So I think there will be needs for bodies of experts that will advise, but I would hate to see this becoming something that we expect to be legislated by national governments. When politicians try to put and distinguish between good and bad technology, we're the losers. Um, so that's why I think this future where we decentralize our power is kind of something very exciting. Well, Mark, listen, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you on the podcast today. Thanks so much uh, for coming on. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Fed. Take care. Thanks for listening to Your Best Self. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button or leave me a review. Thank you.